are in Romans, I encourage you to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 1, and as always, to have a Bible open as we study God's Word to the text we're studying is always a good thing, that we might see and read the words ourselves. It does help us to memorize or to keep those things in our minds as well. Last week, we made a beginning as we looked at, by way of introduction, some of the common questions necessary as we begin any new study. We noted the author of the book of Romans, of course, is the Apostle Paul. Uh, Even uh, easier than that, the audience, clearly stated by Paul, is the church at Rome, that we judged, I think, rightly to be made up of both Jews and Greeks. That would have changed uh, throughout the course of history, as we talked about that last week, as far as Claudius and his expulsion of all of the Jews from Rome for a period of time. But they eventually returned, as we see towards the end of the book of Romans. And so it is a congregation that is made up of both Jews and Gentiles. You'll see that as we study uh, the text of Romans, as we move through it together, that uh, the points that Paul makes and what he highlights is geared towards both Jews and Gentiles. We noted it was likely written by Paul when he was in Corinth, one of the churches that he helped to establish for three months in Acts chapter 20, somewhere in the mid to late 50s AD. So we did all of that last week. We talked about a number of things besides that. But I think we're ready to begin this evening by looking at the first seven verses uh, tonight. And as I was thinking this week, there was another question that came into my mind. And that question is this, why, why does Paul write this letter as he does? It is clearly one of the most carefully argued letters. Uh, People have described it as a polemic. A polemic is sort of an intense argument trying to make a point. It, It can be called polemical in that sense. Paul is clearly arguing. He's laying out very clearly in a very orderly way what he wants the Church of Rome to understand. So Why does he write it that way? None of his letters are written in the same kind of way that he does here uh, as he writes. There are polemical parts to all of his letters, but this one seems to be so carefully structured. Why is it, and the argument so carefully made, why is it that Paul writes this way? Well, I was thinking as we talked last week that it's probably very much related to this simple fact. Remember, Paul did not establish this church It was not part of his missionary journey uh, as he traveled around Asia Minor. He never made it to Rome until at the end of uh, the book of Acts, we find him in Rome, uh, as we'll note even later uh, this evening in our sermon. But uh, he never made it there as an apostle, teaching the church at Rome, seeking to establish the church at Rome in solid doctrine and teaching. He was never there. He heard about them. We'll see that uh, next week especially. He heard about their faith. uh, And he knew a little bit about the church through people like Aquila and Priscilla. But he did not ever go there. And so this was Paul's way of writing an apostolic, authoritative, apostolic message of the gospel in written form, clearly expressed, clearly laid out, clearly delineated, And that seems to me to be a good answer to the reason why Paul is writing the way that he is. He wants to provide for the church a very clear summary 
of all that the gospel means so that the church itself would be firmly established upon the truth of that gospel. And so he begins the way he does even tonight. And we'll see in these first seven verses how much he packs into uh, this uh, opening salutation or greetings that he sends to the church. And it becomes very clear where he's going, very clear. In fact, as we'll see when we end the sermon and bring it full circle, he begins and ends the book of Romans in the exact same way. And we'll see that as we have an opportunity this evening. So I think that's a helpful way to think about why Romans is unique among all the letters that Paul wrote. This is a church he never physically was president. He didn't minister there uh, over years as he did in some of the other places that he visited. And there was no apostolic sort of teaching that establishes the church. So concern for them, obviously, he wants to give them that clear apostolic message of the gospel that God himself has already been working among them uh, for many years by the time Paul writes to them. So uh, please stand as we hear then Paul's initial salutation, his greetings in verses 1 through 7, and then we'll pray together. Let's hear God's word together. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name, among all the nations, including you, who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all of those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Thus far the reading of God's word, all flesh is as the grass and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers the flowers fade but the word of our God stands forever let us pray father we give you thanks though this is the opening statement of the apostle Paul in a much longer letter it captures so clearly according to your spirit the truth of the gospel we pray that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see hearts to joyfully receive all that you have given to us in this glorious gospel of your Son. And we ask and pray it all with thanksgiving in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Last week we noted that as we begin our study, or began our study, that the phrase Paul uses in verse 1 is a very helpful way to think about the, the book of Romans. It is the gospel of God. It is God's gospel. That's really what Paul is saying. It's noted here that the possessive is used here. And so Paul is saying that is the gospel which belongs to God, the gospel which God himself initiated, the gospel that God himself has delivered or spoken to the world. It's not Paul's creation, not Paul's idea. He is but a servant of Christ Jesus and an apostle who is himself set apart for this gospel. 
And so we can look at the whole book of Romans that way. But if you look a little bit later, verse 9, you'll see another phrase, very similar but different. He refers to it as the gospel of his son. And so the gospel of God is the gospel of his son, our Lord Jesus Christ. It is the good news of what God the Father has done through Jesus Christ, his son. And that's really where Paul is going to take us tonight in these opening verses. Now, as you look at these verses, especially verse 1, which uh, I begin with this evening, you'll notice how Paul began to think of himself as he understood the good news in his own life. Remember, one of the other ways to understand Romans is to see it as Paul's own story. The story of Paul, a Pharisee of Pharisees, one who looked for his righteousness to be from the law, came to understand by God's grace that it was only through Jesus Christ. But notice how he describes himself. Three things I think we clearly see. He is, first of all, a servant or a slave of Christ Jesus. That is a recognition of authority. Paul is willingly submitting himself as a doulos under the lordship, the kingship of Jesus Christ. He is acknowledging from the outset that he has a king whom he is serving. It is with willingness. It is voluntary. It is by the grace of God. It is the focus of his life. He is a servant or a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ, a common phrase he uses in many of introductions. Secondly, he is one who is called to be an apostle. An apostle is one who is sent with a message or a mandate by God, an authoritative message. And so he recognizes that he has been called by God. The actor here is God. The one who is called is Paul. And he is called to be one who is sent into the world with this authoritative message. And then thirdly, he says he is set apart. Set apart for the gospel of God. This obviously relates to his calling, his mission in life. It is the purpose for which he is called. To be one who proclaims the message of the gospel, the gospel of God, to the Gentiles primarily. Now, we see all of this beautifully in what Luke records for us in the book of Acts chapter 9, when God, remember, called Ananias to go and speak with Paul after he was blinded on the road, after he met Jesus Christ, who is the one who called him and set him apart to be an apostle. Remember the words the Lord spoke to Ananias that he was to tell Paul, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine, To carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. This is how Paul understood himself. How he understood what God had done in his life. John Murray, whose commentary on the book of Romans remains one of the best and standard works even today, says it best. When describing what Paul is saying here regarding his calling and being set apart unto the gospel of God, he writes this, no language, no language could be more eloquent, that's this language of Paul, of the decisive action of God in calling him and the completeness of Paul's resulting commitment to the gospel. All bonds of interest and attachment, alien or extraneous, to the promotion of the gospel, have been cut asunder, and he is set apart by the investment of all his interests and ambitions in the cause of the gospel. 
That's how Paul saw himself, a slave, a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. All other interests, contrary to, extraneous to, that calling were severed from his life. And if you think about Paul, you think about his life, you think about the letters he wrote, you think about how he describes himself in those letters, doesn't that fit who this man really was? So uniquely, the moment of his calling, he was transformed by the same gospel that he was now called to proclaim. Everything about him, everything about him, was now devoted to Christ and the proclamation of the gospel. It's very much like that great hymn that we sing very often here by Francis Havergal. Take my life and let it be consecrated Lord to thee. Take my moments and my days, let them flow in ceaseless praise. And then you know the verses after that. Take my hands, take my feet, take my voice, take my lips, take my silver, my gold, my intellect, my will, my heart, my love. Take all that I am myself, and I will be ever only all for thee, ever only all for thee. So as Paul writes this gospel of God, the gospel of his son, he is doing it from that understanding, which I would add is a fitting response of every believer and follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. We sing those words often, but they're hard to sing, aren't they, sometimes? Because we know that there are parts of us we have not yet devoted, as it were, given over to the lordship and the obedience of the gospel in Jesus Christ. But it all sets the stage for us as we begin our study of the book of Romans, how he understood himself, how he was writing to these believers in Rome is now before them as an example, yes, as a reminder to what they are called as well. And now he sets out to do several things in this opening uh, uh, salutation or greeting. And notice, as I read it, he packs so much so much into these opening verses. We, as we've often noted when we begin these books, we've often noted how we skip over these verses. They're just introductions. But how important they are for us to understand what Paul is saying here. This one is unique. It's not merely, hello, how are you? It is a description of everything that he's going to talk about in the chapters, the verses and chapters that will follow. In fact, he makes, I think, several points, five in total tonight. So there are not three, but there are five points to look at tonight. As we look at the gospel of God, the gospel of his son, as Paul wants to lay it all out by way of introduction in these verses. Notice first, Paul is set apart here for this gospel. First, which he promised in verse 2, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. This gospel of God was promised, set forth before, in the promises of Holy Scripture. Now by this, this beginning phrase, the apostle means that what he is about to write to them is the only foundation of the church's teaching and its belief and its practice, that this is not a new thing. This is not something Paul and the other apostles invented or created in their own minds. It is from God. 
Remember, it is God's gospel. It is the gospel of his son. It is from God, and he has promised it beforehand. We live in an age, and we all know this, that we are often very drawn to and attracted to what is new and the latest, whether it be technology or really anything. There's something very attractive in people's minds about new things, the latest things. We grow weary. We grow tired of the old standards, if you will, or going back to the old things over and over again. We're looking for a new way, a new path. Give me something new. Give me something exciting. People are often carried away in our day by that sort of uh, draw. And that's the principle, I think, which draws so many, for instance, if you think about it, maybe you're guilty, as uh, most of us can be, the principle that draws so many to upgrade their phones to the latest version that comes out, even though your phone is perfectly fine. It's perfectly fine. It's a working phone. But there's something about the newness of it, something about being new and shiny, the latest technology that draws us in. I think Jeremiah the prophet understood this common human desire when in chapter 6 of his prophecy he wrote what the Lord said, Thus says the Lord, stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk in it. The people in Jeremiah's day said, no, we don't like the old ways, the old ways of Moses' commandments and God's promises given through the prophets of old. We prefer the new prophets, Jeremiah, that are telling us there's really peace and peace all around us. And we need not fear this destruction of which you speak. And yet the people came to understand that there is no peace for the wicked. God's righteous judgment was going to come upon them. But they didn't want the old paths, the old ways. God's gospel as it was spoken in the Old Testament, through the prophets, through the Holy Scriptures, to a broken and rebellious people as it is today. There is, according to Mary, unity and continuity that Paul highlights here between the gospel as it was spoken and delivered and promised in the Old Testament and the one that Paul was now preaching. There's a unity of those, uh, those books. The unity of the whole Bible is seen here. Think of the many times Jesus in his own earthly ministry spoke words like this from John chapter 5, for instance. And the father who sent me has himself borne witness about me, he says. His voice you have never heard. He's talking about the testimony of God to the gospel of his son throughout the Old Testament. His form you have never seen. and and, and, And you do not have his word abiding in you. For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures, the Old Testament, because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they, that is the Old Testament scriptures, they bear witness of me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. And who doesn't remember the words of Luke in his gospel towards the end? As after all those unforgettable scenes of that Good Friday and Saturday and the resurrection on Sunday, they were leaving Jerusalem having heard about the resurrection but filled with despair because, as the text says, they 
heard about from the women, the resurrection, but him they did not see. And so whatever they were thinking, they didn't believe that Jesus was raised. And you remember Jesus' words to them. He said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? You see what he's saying? It was necessary because God said it was through the Old Testament prophets. Their very scriptures, which they believed and read, told them that Christ, the Messiah, must indeed suffer. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And so the gospel is declared in all of the scriptures. It is the heart of the whole Bible and what the apostles and others will write down under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit will be entirely consistent with everything God has spoken in the Old Testament. It will simply, as I remember telling you at one point what my professor in seminary said, it is simply the New Testament turning the light on in the room filled with all the Old Testament promises. Christ is there at every place as he himself went on to tell these two uh, grieving uh, people walking on the road to Emmaus. So the gospel, first of all, is that which was promised beforehand that we see in the prophets of the Holy Scripture. Secondly, it is the gospel which concerns his son. Paul goes on, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead. Now this is the longer of the five points, but the message is very clear. This is the message of the gospel. And yes, the stock Sunday school answer works here. It is all about Jesus. It is all about Jesus. And there are two distinct things that Paul speaks of our Savior, Jesus Christ, here. He speaks, first of all, of his humiliation. You see that as he goes on to say he was descended from David according to the flesh. That phrase, that way of Paul writing and speaking clearly has reference to his humanity. Jesus is human, fully human as well as we'll see in a moment, fully divine. But he is descended from David according to the flesh. He is the fulfillment of the passage read earlier in chapter 7 of 2 Samuel. The promise was given to David that he would have one who would sit on his throne forever. That would not be Solomon. That would be Christ according to the flesh. Fully human. Remember our study of 1 John Wednesday nights. And our study of the Gospel of John, in many ways, echoes this very point. He was indeed fully human. The one who denies his humanity is the one who ends up denying Jesus Christ entirely. We cannot uh, deny his humanity as much as we cannot deny his divinity. And so his humiliation is referenced here. His coming in the likeness of human flesh his being in the line of David according to the flesh. But we also see his exaltation. He is, Paul says, declared to be the Son of God 
in power according to the spirit of holiness when he was raised from the dead. Now be careful here. This does not mean that God declared the son to be the son of God only when he was raised. He has always been the son of God. There was never a time where he was not the second person of the Holy Trinity. He did not cease to be the Son of God when he took on our humanity and our likeness. What Paul is referencing here is the idea of his messianic role as our Redeemer, as our intercessor, that one Redeemer, that one God-man who is exalted over all. That is what Paul is referencing because of his faithfulness in his humbling himself even unto death the father remember philippians chapter 2 highly exalted him and gave him a name which is above every name that the name of jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that jesus is lord to the glory of god the father that's really what's being referenced here in these verses he's looking at both his humanity and his divinity he's telling us that the gospel of God has everything to do with understanding who this Jesus is he is the fulfillment of the Davidic promise and he is the son of God who now is at the father's right hand raised with power by the Holy Spirit Our catechism is very helpful as we look at what it teaches about these two states of our Savior, Jesus Christ, as our mediator. Our catechism talks about this. This one mediator between God and man existed, if you will, or experienced these two states. The first, the question is, wherein did Christ's humiliation consist? Christ's humiliation consisted in his being born in a low condition, made under the law, undergoing the miseries of this life, the wrath of God, and the cursed death of the cross, in being buried, and in continuing under the power of death for a time. Now that all has to do with his humanity, his taking on our human nature, and his suffering for our sins. Wherein then consisteth Christ's exaltation? Christ's exaltation consists in his rising again from the dead on the third day, in ascending up into heaven, in sitting at the right hand of God the Father, and in coming to judge the world at the last day. Nothing changed with respect to his divine nature. There was nothing added or taken away from it. He remained the entire time of his mediatorial work. For us, his coming in human likeness, suffering and dying in our place, he remained fully God. But God, because of his humiliation, as according to Roman or Philippians 2 says, because of his humiliation, as our mediator, now the eternal God-man, he was exalted above everything and seated at God's right hand. And from there, he remains our mediator. Remember, interceding for us always and so faithfully. He was raised, Paul says, by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's 
The language here, I think, says the spirit of holiness. You see spirit in most versions should be capitalized. It's really a reference to the Holy Spirit. It's what Paul will later say in Romans 8 in verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then he who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. And so the gospel of God, the gospel of his son, has to do with that which was promised by God, spoken by God, by the prophets in Holy Scripture in the past. It concerns Jesus, the God-man and the mediator of his people. Thirdly, it is for or to the end, he says, of the obedience of faith. That phrase is found at the end of that verse. I think it's verse Five, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. This is the end or the purpose of God's gospel or the gospel of his son. This is a very interesting phrase. We could probably spend the whole night speaking about it and what Paul means by it. What makes it most interesting, actually, is it's only found in the Bible in two places, And it both in the book of Romans. It's in the beginning in chapter 1, verse 5. And it's in the last chapter, in chapter 16, verse 26. That itself should cause us to sit up and say, well, what is Paul saying by this phrase, the obedience of faith? Again, it is interesting. In Romans 16, 26, now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel... And the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept for long ages but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. Several options to think about as to what this means. The language itself can be translated in different ways. But I agree with those who have studied this far more deeply than I have, certainly, but I tend to agree with the commentators who take this view, that there are two possible ways of interpreting this consistent with the rest of the scriptures, and those two ways are these. First, the obedience which consists of faith, that is, the obedience to the gospel and belief or faith in the gospel. Secondly, it can be translated the obedience that flows from faith or faith that results in obedience. Now, as you hear those two options, you have no trouble, as I have no trouble, in understanding that both of these are valid. And in fact, I think the best view is that both of them are view here. The obedience of faith consists of the faith itself where we believe the gospel. Remember, the gospel, as it is proclaimed in the New Testament, is a command. Repent and believe the gospel and you shall be saved. It is a command given, as Paul says in Acts chapter 17. God commands men everywhere to repent and to believe the gospel. And so the obedience of faith is the the obedience which consists of faith and believing the message that God has spoken. 
And that clearly is very much what Paul has in mind here. And in fact, we're going to see as we go through our study of Romans that that will be a primary point that Paul makes, especially in the earlier chapters. How was Abraham justified? It was by the obedience of faith, by believing the promise of God that he gave to him, by trusting in what God had said, not having seen or come to see at all the Savior, only seeing him by faith. But it also, and Paul will make a big deal of this through Romans, it will also be the obedience of our lives that flow from faith. When faith comes, as the reformers were so wont to to say, it is never alone. Faith issues forth in obedience. The one who has true faith is the one who delights in the commandments of Jesus, the commandments of God. And so it is both an obedience that flows from faith and an obedience which consists of faith. They're both in view here. And what Paul is saying is very clear, that the message of the gospel, which was spoken by God in the Old Testament, which concerns the Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, is a gospel that ought to issue forth in people first believing the message of the gospel by God's grace, and then walking in obedience to that gospel that they themselves have come to believe by his grace alone. Now, both of these things are in view, not only here in these very words, but also in the rest of the book. But there are two other things very quickly as we draw all of this to a close, and it is the next point. This gospel is also for the sake of his name. Now, we know that that phrase for the sake of his name can probably better be translated for the glory of his name everything that God does in the gospel of his son is for the glory of his name remember Philippians 2 that every knee should bow that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the father everything that God does in the gospel of his son is for the sake or the glory of his name, that he would receive all glory. And then finally, and most directly, and and I won't say much about this, Pastor Fisher did a wonderful job this morning, of course, reminding us of the whole purpose of the gospel going both to Jew and Gentile. It is for the nations. We study that all throughout the book of Isaiah towards the end, chapters 40 and onward to 66, it was all about this expansion of the gospel that God was declaring not only for the Jew, but for the Gentile as well. It is among the nations, all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. I think that's Paul's way of saying even you, Even you, those in Rome, believers, Jew and Gentile alike, a picture of the church of Jesus Christ gathering both together into one body. He says, even you, including you who are called by God to belong to Jesus Christ. And then he ends all of this, of course, with his very familiar salutation and greeting, his benediction, his blessing, grace to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, this is the gospel of God, according to Paul in Romans. It is the gospel of his son. 
It is what the Apostle Paul lived for. It's what he was called to do, to be an apostle, a proclaimer, a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it is what God is still doing today, in and through us, in and through preachers, as we have here at Grace, as we stand week after week in this current of history from the very beginning, from Adam and Eve and the proclamation of the gospel to Adam and Eve, we stand in that line as those who are called and set apart to proclaim the gospel of God, the gospel of his son. And we are all, if we are believers, we are all caught up in this. We're all drawn by his grace into this. We are all those, according to Paul in verse 7, who are loved by God and who are called to be saints. You see it there as well, don't you? Loved by God and called to be holy and set apart as God has set us apart in his son. Remember, this is an introduction. It's an outline of us for us of all that Paul will address in this letter. It's a way for him to set down for a church he has never visited, he has never interacted with apart from this letter, to set down the the message of the gospel of God, the gospel of his son, so that they in turn would rest in that knowledge and truth and proclaim that truth to a world. That's why the whole thrust of the book of Acts, as you follow and trace Paul's journeys, you begin to see very clearly his goal and purpose. He wants to reach Rome. Because as we studied Acts together, what did we say so often? You reach Rome, you reach the world. And that's where he wants to reach. He wants to reach the world. And so the book of Acts ends this way. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning until evening, he expounded to them. This is in Rome testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers, through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can hardly or barely hear, and their eyes have been closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. He's talking about the message of the gospel now. Having closed the hearts of the Jewish people, is now going to the Gentiles. Therefore, let it be known to you, that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Imagine his joy. He wrote this letter in the mid-50s. This is in the 60s AD. This is later When he finally did make it to Rome, he was under house arrest, but God gave him freedom for two whole years to welcome all who would come to him and to proclaim the gospel of God, teaching about Jesus Christ. The very fact that there was a church already in Rome when he wrote this letter by the power of God was stunning. 
And it was a testimony of the power and grace of God alone. And so Paul writes at the end of his letter, further still, I long to go west, I long to go to Spain, I long to go to the ends of the earth. Why? Why did he long to go to the ends of the earth? Well, he just told us in this introduction, the gospel of God is about what God has already declared in the scriptures concerning his son, our Lord Jesus Christ, to bring about the obedience of faith among all the nations to the glory and praise of his name. And I read it already. The end of the book, the very verses that I read previously when we were talking about how he ends with this same idea, he says the same exact thing, the same exact thing that he says here. And between these two ends, bookends as it were, is all the glory of a God who saves sinners, something which the Apostle Paul will firmly establish by way of argument, by way of example, in the clearest way possible. This is Paul's story but it is also the story of every sinner saved by grace. Amazing grace, the hymn writer said, amazing grace. How can it be that thou might God shouldst die for me? Let us pray. Our Father, as we make a beginning this evening and in the weeks to come into the heart of this letter, already our hearts are thrilled as we hear the Apostle Paul setting forth a clarity of the gospel of God and the gospel of his son that is a message to be believed by faith that is a command from a holy God to sinners like us and it is through that command by the power of your spirit that hearts and lives are made new and alive how we thank you for that grace which you give that we might believe the gospel But we pray earnestly, even this night, as we enter into this coming week, that our hearts would also understand that a gospel that is believed, truly, is a gospel that will issue forth in obedience to all that you've commanded, and that with great joy. Grant us grace to that end, we pray, that we might be to the praise of your glorious grace, both now and forevermore, we pray, with thanksgiving, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.